All right, so Sarah, I thought we'd start this episode slightly differently, but a text you sent me, you know, earlier this week about a debate on Instagram made me really consider the why behind this episode and why specifically the why is so important. So go ahead, tell your story. Mm. Yay. (laughs) (laughs) Stories about when I didn't feel great. Okay. So I don't love social media, but every once in a while I get back on there to scroll and see what people have been up to. And while the algorithms have indeed pushed me too into an echo chamber of people who largely have the same viewpoints that I do. The other day, someone posted a question that totally jumped out at me. So it was like one of those big posts and it said, what exactly is a MAGA Republican and why are they so dangerous? Question mark. And so from what I gathered, this was in response to that primetime speech that President Biden made, right? Remember that? It took aim at like extremism that threatens the foundations of our country, not extremism from other people, but from within people who don't respect the constitution, who do not recognize the will of the people who refuse to accept the results of a free election. So he said those vaguely, but specifically we're talking about people who do not believe the results of the 2020 election were fair and accurate. People who do not believe Donald Trump should be charged with a crime for his involvement in the insurrection at the Capitol on January 6th. So I see this, what exactly is the, right? And it's like a challenge. I felt like I really had to come up with a reply, especially because the immediate replies that I saw to that thread, they were completely dismissive or inflammatory. Stuff like, apparently there anybody who doesn't agree with 100% of this administration. Another post was like, oh, it's a way to keep America divided or because creating an enemy distracts from what's really going on. So my point of this is people who saw that post were completely dismissing why this group of politicians was being called out, a group of Americans was being called out. People do not see how big of a deal it is right now to examine where our really rather precarious state, one of our two major political parties is. So that's why, because it's a big freaking deal in case I didn't emphasize that enough. If you're wondering what the big deal is here or why that question really matters right now, then this, dear friends, is an episode for you because you're going to learn a lot. It is mind blowing. Good job, Sasha. Welcome to the Dear White Women podcast, the show that helps white women use their privilege to uproot systemic racism without centering themselves in the process. We are your biracial Japanese and white hosts, Sarah and Misasha. Okay, so as Sarah alluded to, and I also want to say that when you texted me about this, you sent me the screenshot of that question. And then I think your next response was, I took the bait or something like that. So, which I love those when those text threads start with that. Cause I'm like, oh, let's see what happens next. But I love that you told that story because what we're gonna do here today is really a primer on not the cyclical nature of the Republican party. And like, let's just put a huge asterisk there. And can I just say, like, in terms of the title, I don't know when you listen to podcasts, if you necessarily look at the title, but I love the title. It's Democrats used to be Republicans. What (laughs) is how I envisioned how that went? Yes, that's great. You got the inflection. You're good. Okay, you got it. Okay, because so back to the asterisk, right? Because I just said Republican Party. And I think that you know, what we know to be the 2022 Republican Party, including, you know, the group of MAGA Republicans, right, which Sarah, you were referring to, is a far cry from where the Republican Party actually started in our, like, country's history. And so I asterisk that because we're going to come back to that in a second. 
But it's also important to understand why this Republican Party is so different from its predecessors. And so to start, we turn to the words of Heather Cox Richardson, who is, as you know, a favorite here on our podcast. And she says this. Before Trump won the presidency in 2016, the modern day Republican Party was well on its way to endorsing oligarchy or a small group of people having control of a country, organization or institution. It had followed the usual U.S. historical pattern to that point. And this is why it's really important to know history. In the 1850s, 1890s, 1920s, and then again in the modern era, wealthy people had come around to the idea that society worked best if a few wealthy man, men ran everything. I would like to say that's typically a few wealthy white men. Although those people had been represented by the Democrats in the 1850s and the Republicans in the 1890s, 1920s, and 2000s, and if you're listening to that and say, what? Just wait a second. So there were different parties that represented these same people, but they had gotten there in the same way. First, a popular movement had demanded that the government protect equality of opportunity and equal justice before the law for those who had previously not had either. And that popular pressure had significantly expanded rights. And then, just to complete the full circle, those few wealthy men, and sometimes now, more recently, women, decide that they want that power back from the people. And this whole cycle starts again. I'm so already shaking my head because you just said that this idea also of oligarchs, right, that small group of people having control had been represented by the Democrats in the 1850s. But isn't that more like, from what I understood at least, to be a Republican ideal? Like, what happened? Yeah, it's a great question. And that is true for the Republicans that we know in 2022, right? But not when the Republican Party started back in 1854. So let me take you back to US history whenever you had that 10th grade, 11th grade. Before Republicans existed, there were Democrats and there were Whigs. <laughs> okay, so who were the Whigs? Because I totally, <laughs> you just said, remember US history, but nothing is twigging, twigging right now get it wow okay i see what you did there all right so in the sort of patterns of parties taking positions in response to something parties were also created in response to something so let's start with the wigs okay the wigs were wig party and my grandfather would be so proud at this point that i'm like giving you this this history your your historian grandfather love it mm -hmm. so the wig party was formed in 1834 as a loose confederation of groups opposed to what they saw as the then president's Andrew Jackson's autocratic style, right? An authoritarian rule. So they used to satirize him as King Andrew I. And because of that, they took their name from England's Whigs, who had wanted to keep also keep their monarch's power in check. All right, so these folks were basically an alliance then of Northern business owners and professionals and Southern states' rights proponents. And because they were so different, and yes, I understand, you've got on one hand, you've got the Northern business owners and professionals. On the other hand, you've got Southern states' rights proponents. Doesn't seem like those two groups would ever go together. And not shockingly, they never projected a coherent political philosophy. What they did do, though, was win elections by avoiding issues, which they really had to do because they couldn't agree on any of the issues. But... Get, even with, you know, this weird marriage of the, you know, northern business, southern states' rights, there was one big difference in the Whigs. One group, and you can take a guess as to which one, but they were known as the Cotton Whigs, if you need a clue, mm. supported slavery. The Conscious Whigs 
opposed it. So by 1852, the cotton Whigs mostly jumped ship over to the Democrats. And it was the Democrats because that was the party at the time that basically reflected the white Southerner belief that the right of self-government entitled them to just enslave a whole bunch of Black people. Like, I feel a little bit gut punched right now. So the Democrats used to be the party that supported enslavement, is what you're saying. Okay, so got it. So there were Whigs and Democrats, but you still didn't answer the question, where did Republicans come from? Right. So we left off with the cotton Whigs. Right. Moving over to the Democrats, remember, pro-slavery Democrats at the time, which left a much smaller Whig party. That said, the Whigs that were left, remember the conscious Whigs, were definitely anti-slavery. And so they began meeting in the late winter of 1854 to discuss forming a new party. So, okay, so the smaller group of Whigs are meeting. And then we have the Kansas-Nebraska Act, you know, and so and I should say that late winter of 1854 is the 1853 to 54 winter. So back to the Kansas-Nebraska Act. So there will be a quiz on this later. I'm just kidding. But it was passed in May of 1854 and sponsored by the Democratic senator, remember, pro-slavery side, Stephen A. Douglas. Yes, the same Douglas of the Lincoln-Douglas debates for any of you who did speech and debate. No. No. Okay. Well, (laughs) one of us did speech and debate, so I will just, yes, own that. They can all tell because I cannot speak and you're great and brilliant. (laughs) All right. So... The Kansas-Nebraska Act was really about trying to get a railroad through to the West, okay? Because remember, this was, you know, sort of the Manifest Destiny time period. Not going to discuss that in detail here. But to garner support from the Southern Democrats, this Democratic Senator Douglas inserted a provision allowing residents of the new Kansas and Nebraska territories to decide for themselves whether to allow slavery, which sounds maybe great for people who were really big states' rights proponents, but this effectively repealed the Missouri Compromise of 1820, which had really divided the country at like the parallel 36 degrees, 30 minutes north between the pro-slavery South and the anti-slavery North. So you had had this division, right, created by the Missouri Compromise, where you had the Northerners, no slavery, Southerners, yes, slavery. And now Stephen Douglas is like, you guys, we're just going to let everyone decide for themselves. Yikes. But still, where do the Republicans come in? All right. So on March 20th, and this date is a little bit up for debate in 1854, just a couple of months before the Kansas-Nebraska Act was passed, is generally remembered this date as the founding meeting of the Republican Party in Ripon, Wisconsin. But whether or not that's actually true, it wasn't just the anti-slavery Whigs who founded the Republican Party. In other words, many historians believe that it was just geography that led to the formation of this new party. In other words, that north-south split that we just talked about through the Missouri Compromise and the whole Kansas-Nebraska Act thing that ultimately fueled the Civil War was the catalyst. So according to Joshua Zeitz, who is an author who has taught history and politics at Cambridge, Harvard, and Princeton, the Republican Party was a party founded by ex-Democrats and ex-Whigs who were opposed to slavery. So you did have some Democrats at the time who thought slavery was BS. A whole bunch of Northern Democrats opposed the Kansas-Nebraska Act, and that's why they left the party. You know, there may have been other interests too, specifically immigration. Like the Republican Party was originally founded in the mid 1800s to oppose like immigration and the slave spread to oppose anti-immigration, I guess, and the spread of slavery, says David Goldfield. And he says the Republican Party was strictly a sectional party, meaning that it didn't just exist 
in the South, right? The South didn't really care at that time about immigration. Interestingly enough, South seems to care a lot now. But it did care about preserving slavery. And that was the split. And that's why the Republicans were formed. And I should note that former Democrats turned Republicans weren't disgusted simply by the imposition of popular sovereignty and territory that should, by their estimation, have been free, i.e. Kansas and Nebraska. They also watched as their former party, and stop me if this sounds familiar, perverted the very idea of free elections and democratic process. And, hmm, okay, don't know where we've seen that recently. In the Kansas Territory, as they call them, border ruffians, which is a very 1850s term, led by Missouri's Democratic Senator David Atchison, moved in and out of Kansas with impunity, doing things like stuffing ballot boxes, you know, um, creating violence on free state settlers and attempting to tilt the scale in favor of slavery. Who David Atchison also said, and he sounds like a real gem when he says this, you know how to protect your own interests. Your rifles will free you from such neighbors. You will go there if necessary with the bayonet and with blood. If we win, we can carry slavery to the Pacific Ocean. Again, I feel like we might have seen similar tactics, maybe not about the same thing, but similar tactics recently. Although anti-slavery voters probably made up a healthy majority of the population, you know, these pro-slavery forces stole a series of territorial elections at that time. This is fascinating because as I'm hearing you talk about, you know, this Democratic senator, I feel like I keep having to do this mental switch in my head now. Like it's reminding me that in the 1800s, when I hear Democrat, that is not what Democrats today stand for. Democrats back then were pro-slavery, primarily in the South. Like, mind-blowing, right? You mentioned trivia before. So I already now remember 1854 was the Kansas-Nebraska Act, right? Good. You're going to win something big and yeah, pub trivia. But here's another question, trivia-wise. Where did the name Republican come from? Okay, this is going to win you something big too, I'm sure, at some point. The group called themselves Republicans in reference to Thomas Jefferson's Republican faction in like way back when this country, America, was first created in that Republican government was supposed to be an egalitarian form of government, right? Or I guess, you know, more egalitarian if you're white and a landowning male than anyway. Some also say, though, that the Republican Party name was christened in an editorial written by this big New York newspaper guy, Horace Greeley. And Greeley printed in June 1854 this statement. We should not care much whether thus united against slavery were designated Whig, free Democrat, or something else. Though we think some simple name like Republican would more fitly designate those who had united to restore the union to its true mission of champion and promulgator of liberty rather than propagandist of slavery. Well said. I've been to Greeley Square in New York City. Yeah. Uh, and the answer is B. <laughs> have you seen that viral video? Yes. I will have to find that and share that on social media um, because that makes us laugh every single time. Okay. So you mentioned just now or earlier, like the Whigs were deeply divided, right? There's pro-slavery, anti-slavery. What kept the Republican Party together as a party? Yeah, that's a great question because now you've got Whigs, you've got free Democrats, you've got a whole bunch of people, right? But they, the Republican, this new Republican Party fundamentally agreed on two things. You know, one, that slavery must not be extended into the territories, right? They oppose the Kansas-Nebraska Act, among other things. 
and that the Democratic Party, and now they're talking really about the Southern Democratic Party, was a dangerous anti-democratic institution, ironically, given the name, that must be ground out throughout the North, right? So they were like, you guys can keep the South, but we're taking back the North. And so that left a lot of room for disagreement about like literally everything else, like monetary policy, the powers of the federal state, tariffs at the time. But those were the two concepts that united them. That's so interesting that one of them is like an anti-belief, right? Like we are against those people. So it started back then, this whole our party versus your party thing. Interesting. All right. So in today's society, right, where we've gotten where everyone's like, we're so divided. People are so either very staunchly Republican or very staunchly Democratic. And there's no way that a third party can possibly be created because they just will ruin everything, even though we probably desperately need a third party in this country. But anyway, I digress. Smaller parties right now, there's no way you have the power to get a president elected. So how did that Republican Party go from being like scrabbled together group of people to grow and elect a Republican president? And where does the Civil War fit into all this? Yeah, great question, because I agree that would never happen today. But so this new party, the Republicans, rapidly gained supporters in the North, because remember, they were really focusing their efforts in the North. And in 1856, their first presidential candidate, who was John C. Fremont, who no one remembers, but hey, maybe that's a great trivia question, too, won 11 of the 16 Northern states. So that's actually a lot for, you know, a very new party. By 1860, the majority of the Southern slave states were publicly threatening secession if the Republicans won the presidency. So in November 1860, Republican Abraham Lincoln, I think we know who he is now, though, was elected president over a divided Democratic Party. And six weeks later, South Carolina formally seceded from the Union. I have an interesting fact for you, though, about Lincoln, which is this whole history could have been so different because do you know who Lincoln's best friend was? No. Okay, so I didn't even put this in the notes because I wanted to do this live. So do you remember the Donner Party? Like the people that... Right, Manifest Destiny, like, didn't listen to, like, hey, the snow's coming, you need to leave Independence at this point. Like, they're like, whatever, I don't care, I'll leave six weeks late. So there were two families in that party, the Donners and the Reeds. Abraham Lincoln was apparently best friends with the head of the Reed family, to the... So much so that he considered going on this whole Donner Party thing. So didn't go, obviously, was very upset when they left. But that could have changed like history. Fascinating. Right. All these little things like how drastically our entire future would look differently. Wow. That was not even a sentence. But yes. So good for us. He didn't go on the Donner Party. And instead, he got elected to the presidency in November of 1860. So South Carolina then secedes from the Union. Within six more weeks, five other Southern states had followed South Carolina's lead. And in April 1861, the Civil War began at Fort Sumter, right in South Carolina's Charleston Harbor. So like if you're listening to this and you look at the Civil War from a 30,000 foot level, you could argue that everything that led up to the Civil War, right, is that same cyclical reaction that we talked about over and over again. Wealthier Americans began to argue that the expansion of rights threatened to take away their liberty to run their enterprises as they wished. And in the Civil War, that was about slavery, right? To tamp down the expansion of rights, they played on the racism of the poor white male voters who controlled the government telling them that legislation to protect equal rights was a plan to turn the government over to 
black Americans. And in later cycles, right, it became black or brown Americans or immigrants from Southern Europe or Asia who would use their voting power then to redistribute wealth. So the wealthy people couldn't hold on to the wealth would be sort of the natural outcome of this terrible, you know, sky is falling scenario that they describe. That's fascinating. You know, I hear people nowadays talk so much about this idea of wealth hoarding and how that is like the root of so much evil. And I'm hearing that that comes back to bite us in this country over and over and over. So I now have context for what I'm hearing nowadays in a totally different way. Yeah. Started in like the 1850s. Yeah. Wow. Okay. All right. So all the Southern states seceded, they lose a civil war. What happened to the Democrats then if it's largely a party of like pro-slavery Southerners? Right. And they technically lost the ability to have slaves. Yeah. Great question. So after the civil war, you know, the Republicans were in control. Reconstruction happens. Right. And the Democratic Party was pissed about that. Right. So they basically solidified their hold on the South because they were so opposed to Reconstruction. And to quote Goldfield, who I mentioned before, he says, the Democratic Party came to be more than a political party in the South. It came to be a defender of a way of life. I think this also kind of sounds familiar, right? And that way of life was the restoration as much as possible of white supremacy. The Confederate statues you see all around were primarily erected by Democrats. In fact, you know, up until the post-World War II period, that Southern Democrat, that party's hold on the region was so entrenched that Southern politicians usually couldn't get elected unless they were Democrats. That's like up until post-World War II, you know, that's less than 100 years ago. But when President Harry S. Truman, a Democratic Southerner, introduced a pro-civil rights platform at the party's 1948 convention, a faction just got up and walked out. Ha <laughs> ha. So, ooh, a party creating separate factions. That sounds very familiar. So what happened? Keep going. What happened then? Okay. So these defectors, right, the dudes who got up and walked out, known as the Dixiecrats, held a separate convention because they were like, screw your convention. We've got our own in Birmingham, Alabama. There, they nominated South Carolina Governor Strom Thurmond, also a familiar name on this podcast, who was a staunch opposer of civil rights up till his dying day, to run for president on their state's rights ticket. They had a state's rights ticket in 1948. Although Thurman lost the election to Truman, he still won, and I'm laughing because, gosh, this sounds familiar, over a million popular votes. Goldfield again says it was the first time since before the Civil War that the South was not solidly democratic, though, because Truman created that split in that way. And that began the erosion of the Southern influence in the Democratic Party. So after that, the majority of the South still continued to vote Democratic because it thought of the Republican Party as the party of Abraham Lincoln and Reconstruction. So funny because that's not what we think of today. The big break didn't come until President Lyndon B. Johnson another Southern Democrat, signed the Civil Rights Act in 1964 and the Voting Rights Act in 1965. Though some Democrats had switched the Republican Party prior to this, I mean, they probably saw what Truman was doing and they're like, mm, not down with this. The defections became a flood after Johnson signed these acts. And this was the moment where those the political parties really sort of switched places. I mean, if you could see me right now, you'll see that my head is in my hands actually physically because I'm just like, I literally had no idea that it was that recent in history 
that you had a few Democrat leaders basically break from their party's core perspectives and, ooh, God forbid, allow for black people to have rights. Like what? Sorry, I didn't mean to say that in a mocking tone, but I'm just like shocked that so many people were opposed to that in the 1960s to piss them off so much that they actually switched political parties to become more Republican. Because that also goes back to so many people nowadays saying, this is ancient history. We solved the race problems with the in the 1960s. People were so mad that we were trying to fix it that they switched party affiliations because they were putting their like you know, flag in the ground saying, no, I don't believe in this. Like, so clearly the beliefs were still there, right? I mean, we talk about how this latest two administrations ago, like it just brought to light people's true beliefs. And to me, this is what we're talking about, folks. This change of people's party politics, because they didn't agree that Black people were going to get, and women were going to get rights. Like, you've got to be kidding. It's always been here. This is why we all need to be in this conversation. Okay, so I'm going to breathe again. So that's basically when like Democrats became Republicans and vice versa. Was it like immediately after Johnson basically went against party lines with the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act? Yeah. So yes and no. I mean, the change wasn't total or immediate because during the late 1960s and early 1970s, white Southerners were still transitioning away from the Democratic Party during this time. I should note that newly enfranchised black Southerners voted and continue to this day to vote Democratic. Not surprising. And even as Republican Richard Nixon, state of Republican Richard Nixon, employed a Southern strategy that appealed to the racism of Southern white voters, former Alabama governor George Wallace, who when I think of segregation, like I think of this dude front and center because he said he wanted segregation now, segregation tomorrow and segregation forever. He ran as a Democrat in the 1972 presidential primaries. So that, I mean, you're still seeing that transition, right? But by the time Ronald Reagan became president in 1980, the Republican Party's hold on white Southerners was really firm and entrenched. So today, the Republican Party still remains that party, the historical South. An ironic outcome considering that, you know, a century ago, less than a century ago, white Southerners would have never considered voting for the party of Lincoln. I'm still shaking my head that it took a Southern Democrat making policy decisions that basically weren't in line with a Southern Democrat like view, right? Segregation and racism. And it made people angry enough to flip the parties. I'm still just, what? Yeah. Well, and let's not forget that this has been a pattern, you know, like how we started this episode. It happened prior to the Civil War. It happened again with Truman and it happened with Johnson. It has to do with money and power, which is at the root of everything. And as Heather Cox Richardson puts it, the idea that poor men of color or later men and women of color voting meant socialism resounded, uh, really resonated with white voters who turned against the government's protecting equal rights and instead supported a government that favored men of property. I mean, hello, the Civil War, you know, the return of presidents focused on economic policy after World War II, which we didn't have time to touch on. But that was another time that everyone was like, we don't care about this progressive agenda. We want money and we want big business. Like that was the that time where they coined the phrase, the business of America is business. We saw it again with the Dixiecrats. We see it now with the modern Republican Day Party. You know, as wealth moved upward, popular culture championed economic leaders as true heroes and lawmakers suppressed voting, again, sound familiar, to, quote, redeem American society from, quote, socialists who want, and I'm heavy air quotes there, who wanted to redistribute wealth, right? Capital moved upward until a very few people controlled most of it. 
And then usually after an economic crash made ordinary Americans turn against the system that favored the wealthy, the cycle begins again, right? Because let's, you know, take this back to where we started, 2016, when Trump was elected president. When Trump was elected, the U.S. was at the place where wealth had concentrated among the top 1%, right? We've heard that phrase, the top 1%. Republican politicians really went after their opponents as un-American, quote, takers, and celebrated economic leaders as makers, again, gigantic air quotes, and the process of skewing the vote through gerrymandering and voter suppression was well underway. Sound familiar? Like history is cyclical? Yeah, okay, anyway. But up until that point, and this is a really, really important point because this takes us all the way back to your very first social media point. Up until that point, the Republican Party still valued the rule of law. Right. Because fundamentally, it's impossible to run a successful business without a level playing field. Right. As businessmen realized and businessmen and businesswomen realized after the 1929 Great Crash. Right. Which Harold brought in the Great Depression when it became clear that insider trading had meant that winners and losers were determined not by the market, but by cronyism. And we saw that again in 2008 as well. And, you know, which was tied to policies put into place during Reagan's era. We'll just save that for later. Trump's election, however, brought this new right-wing ideology onto the political stage to challenge the rule of law. He was and is an autocrat interested not in making money for a specific class of people, but rather in obtaining wealth and power for himself, his family, and a few insiders. And I think if you look at everything that happened during his presidency to this day, you will see that that is the case. The established Republican Party was willing to back him so long as he could deliver the voters that would enable them to stay in power and continue with tax cuts and deregulation. But their initial distancing didn't last. Trump proved able to forge to really create such a strong base that is virtually a cult following and politicians quickly discovered that crossing his followers really meant that they were going to come after them. Lawmakers' determination to hold Trump's base meant that they acquitted him in both impeachment trials, let's not forget. And we are looking at this same question right now again. Meanwhile, Trump packed state Republican machinery with his own loyalists, and they have helped make the big lie that Trump won the 2020 election, an article of faith that people are still challenging to this day created the monster that got out of control. So we are obviously in a new space in the Republican Party where we've lost the concepts of the rule of law. We've gone all the way to the Trump era of politics where he wants to be the one who holds the wealth and power and maybe toss some favors to the people who are close to him or who back him, right? You've told us a lot about the Democrats and Republicans today. So I've got one last question. We've learned all about the cyclical stuff. How do we take what we've learned here and move forward? Okay, so I was hoping you'd ask that question because we lean towards practical solutions here. And so first of all, I hope that what we've talked about today tells you listeners that the Republican Party has not always been the party of Trump, how very extreme this current Republican Party is, and why the Republican Party, if we run it all the way back, was formed in the first place. There has been an age-old struggle in this country between those who believe that a certain few let's also acknowledge white landholding men, should run everything. And the others who believe that equality is a tenet that America was purported to be founded on and we should continue doing everything we possibly can do to make that dream a reality. We used to call the former group Democrats and the latter group Republicans. 
And because the Democrats would rather leave their party than accept the concept of equality, we flipped those parties over the years. That doesn't mean, however, that struggle has lessened in any way. And in fact, I think we'd argue that it is going to be coming to a head sooner rather than later. And one of those big places is the midterms that are coming up in less than two months. This is all to say party affiliations can change over time, but the principles that you stand for should not. Vote for equality because the other side is loud and organized and expects to win big in November because that's what they believe the cyclical nature of history is telling them. Every vote counts if we are truly going to, you know, be able to cling to whatever we can of our democratic ideals. So tell everyone you know, we need everyone to get as loud as possible. You've just listened to the Dear White Women podcast with your hosts, Sarah and Misasha. Yes, we're on social media. And yes, you can hire us to do talks about our book. But the biggest thing, don't forget to sign up for our newsletter to receive our free materials. Head over to DearWhiteWomen.com to get on the list. <laughs>